1: My goal as I preach week by week, as I stand up and unfold scripture, is to explain the scripture that's in front of us, the chapter that the Lord has laid on my heart to walk through. And my goal is the same every week. I'm preaching for your faith. I'm preaching that you would have formed in you a strong faith, a faith in Christ In the past years, the Lord has given me an insight into the nature of faith, likening it to eyesight, that faith is the eyesight of the soul. And by faith, we are able to see invisible spiritual realities that we could not see any other way. Past, present, and future. And as we come to Revelation 17 and 18, these two chapters, they give us insight into something that these chapters call Babylon. It's a powerful word. The book of Revelation was given to unveil hidden things from us. Things that we could not see any other way. That by the word of God we are able to see invisible spiritual realities that we couldn't see any other way. Apart from Christ we were spiritually blind to these things. But through the ministry of the Holy Spirit based on the word of God we are able to see. Scales fall from our eyes and we can see things that we couldn't see any other way. Past, present and future. My basic understanding of the book of Revelation is that it is a book written for our faith. It reveals hidden things so that we can see them, past, present, and future. We're able to see in the past from Revelation 12 the activity of the dragon, of Satan and his demons throughout redemptive history, a wicked adversary who has created a system, a world system that I think this chapter and the scripture calls Babylon, and that Babylon has a long history, and we're going to walk through some of that biblically this morning, past, we're also able, by faith, to see the present threat of Babylon to our souls now, that there is a present spiritual reality of Babylon that's assaulting our souls every day, and that Revelation 18, 4 and 5 is a command from Christ to come out and be separate from that. To touch no unclean thing. To be, to be pure and holy from this defiling world system that Satan has set up. And that will take every strength and grace that God can give you to fight that good fight. And to finish that race. And to keep the faith. Present reality. But I also believe there's a yet future form of Babylon that's yet to come. In the antichrist system. The system under the final world ru- uh, ruler. The final version of Babylon is yet to come. And so there's a predictive element to this as well. In many ancient cultures, there's a myth of a radiantly colored bird called the phoenix. Some of you have heard of this myth. And some of the myths, this large bird looked like a peacock with purple and red flowing feathers. It could live for a very long time, centuries. Some of the myths have it living even for half a millennia, 500 uh, 500 years, five centuries or more. But the time of its end would come and when it would come it would make an elaborate uh, nest of kindling wood and it would be consumed in a raging ball of fire. And from the ashes of the previous phoenix bird, the bird's successor, the bird's progeny would rise and begin its own prodigiously long life. This cycle of fiery death and the rising from the ashes by the progeny is a tale often told in the ancient world. And it's come down to us in a saying, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Some of you may have heard of that. To some degree, I think that's the story of Babylon as a lasting spiritual reality in human history. This city-state of Babylon, its history has been woven together with overt rebellion against the God of heaven and against His chosen people. In the Bible, Babylon was an actual city in Mesopotamia, built by a mighty and godless hunter named Nimrod, just years after the flood of Noah. It was built in the fertile region of, the, of Mesopotamia, right on the Euphrates River, less than 75 miles from the Tigris uh, River in modern Iraq, only about 50 miles south of modern Baghdad. It was well situated, not only the fertile soil from between the Tigris and Euphrates River, but also ...in the fact that it was situated along a major trade route. And so it was a prosperous city through trade. This trade route called the Fertile Crescent connected the Persian Gulf with uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Thus it began as a nation of merchants. Ezekiel 16.29 calls it a land of merchants... ...but also a land of warriors like their mighty founder Nimrod the hunter... With Babylon and these other city centers came the concept of the city-state, a region controlled by a city. In the course of time, the city-state of Babylon, the inhabitants of it, said in Genesis 11 verse 4, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Listen to their motives so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. That's the essence of the Babylonian spirit. The defiant spirit of human potentiality, of human capability, using technology and intelligence to make a name for yourself. The mighty Babylonian Empire rose in time. It was a vassal state under the Assyrian Empire. It was dominated by the Assyrians until at last it threw off the Assyrian oak under Nebuchadnezzar's father. And then once Nebuchadnezzar died, then Nebuchadnezzar came, the mighty king of Babylon. The Babylonian uh, empire was awesome, it was irresistible in military power, it was complex in culture, it was exquisite in architecture, shrewd in politics. It came back up the fertile crescent and toppled what was left of the dying Assyrian empire and then swept on down through Palestine, conquering what was left of the Jews in Palestine, the kingdom of Judah and deporting the remnant of Jews that were left in Judah and Jerusalem, the Babylonian exile, thus ending Jewish reign in Palestine over the Promised Land. The exile to Babylon was a line of demarcation in the history of the Jews. Before that happened, however, God raised up prophets among the Jews to predict the fall of Babylon. He did this through Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets. Isaiah 13 19 through 22 says this. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there, jackals will fill her houses, there the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds, jackals in her luxurious palaces, Isaiah 13. That was written a century before, a century and a half before uh, the Babylonian Empire came to be. Jeremiah, who was there when the Babylonians came and deported the remnant, ...in the Babylonian exile, he also predicted the uh, destruction of Babylon. In Jeremiah 25, 12, speaking of the 70-year exile of the Jews to Babylon... ...it says, when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation... ...the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord... ...and I will make it desolate forever. The beginning of the end for Babylon is written in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5... Uh, during Belshazzar's feast. There the writing on the wall came predicting the immediate end of the Babylonian empire. They were so arrogant, the Babylonians, thinking that their mighty, lofty, thick walls would protect them from the invading Medo-Persian army. And so they had a drunken feast that night, Belshazzar's feast, and they uh, drank too much. They didn't guard the walls. And the Medo-Persian invading army took advantage of this by diverting the Euphrates River from under the walls and crawling through the portcullis that was under the walls and unlocking the city gate and then slaughtering the Babylonians while they lay in drunken stupor. This is the very thing that Jeremiah had predicted would happen. It's remarkable. Seventy years before that, predicted plainly what would happen. Jeremiah 51-39. While they are aroused... I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk so that they shout with laughter and then sleep forever and never arise. That's Jeremiah 51:39, a clear prediction of exactly how Babylon would fall to the Medo-Persians. However, the destruction, the total desolation of Babylon, the literal city in Mesopotamia did not happen overnight, but only gradually over a few centuries the words of the prophet's gradually came to be fulfilled. Cyrus the Great of Persia took over Babylon and ruled it, but destroyed its immense walls so that the citizens couldn't revolt. Alexander the Great, in the course of time, wanted to live there and make that city the capital of his empire. But he died there before his dreams could be fulfilled. In 309 BC, Antigonus I of Macedonia, a Greek successor of Alexander the Great, leveled Babylon... In 275 BC, Antiochus I took away the remaining civilian population and deported them to other cities. Pausanias, a Greek writer and geographer of the Roman period, uh, said that there was absolutely nothing left within the walls of Babylon by his time. In the last century before Christ, ancient geographer Strabo wrote, the great city of Babylon has become a wilderness. Thus fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Roman Emperor Trajan, eager to visit the infamous city of Babylon, was disappointed when he arrived at the site. It was just a wasted pile of rubble that he could barely identify. In the modern age, as recently as a century ago, the ruins of ancient Babylon had yet to be found by archaeologists. They didn't even know where it was. Then it was found. Saddam Hussein had plans to rebuild Babylon, but they were thwarted by his toppling in the Gulf War. Some modern Iraqi leaders want to turn it into a theme park centered around archaeological artifacts. The problem is that the allied troops that have been there have taken a lot of the artifacts and ruined the site. In the adjacent area, uh, there is today uh, the city of Hilla, but the site of Babylon's ruins is uninhabited except by wild animals and birds, just as Isaiah said it would be. So the literal city of Babylon slowly sank down into the dust of history. But the spirit of Babylon rose like a phoenix from the ashes of the literal city of Babylon... and has moved around from place to place ever since. It's a demonic spirit. It's a spirit of the world. A key passage on understanding the transfer of the spirit of Babylon from the literal city to another city... we see in 1 Peter 5.13... Where the Apostle Peter writes these words... She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. 1 Peter 5.13 Well, church history tradition has Peter in Rome when he wrote that. So that would be code language for Rome. Babylon is Rome. And so the spirit of Babylon rose like a phoenix from the ashes of the literal city of Babylon and infused the Roman Empire of Peter's day. Babylon itself at that point literally was a howling empty wasteland. But she who is in Babylon chosen together with you would be codenamed for the bride of Christ, the local version of which would be the church at Rome. Thus the spirit of Babylon rose from the ashes of the last world-dominating empire and, and took over. It just moves from place to place. It goes from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome to the Vandals perhaps or the Huns or the Vikings or the Mongols or the Spanish or the English or the French under Napoleon or the English under Victoria or the Germans under Hitler for a time. Then what? Then what? Two aspects of Babylon throughout all ages, and it's Phoenix rising from the ashes, one empire after the other. Military power and economic power. But neither of them for the glory of God, neither of them for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but for self-glory. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. The final phase of Babylon is yet to come. Antichrist will come as predicted in Revelation 13. He will set up a world-dominating kingdom. And so Babylon has one yet final phase. And I think that Revelation 17 and 18 covers that as well. So the thing about the book of Revelation, it's not just a prediction of the final seven years of human history as some take it. But it's relevant in every generation of church history. Every generation needs to read and take to heart the warnings therein. And so when we come to Revelation 18, 4 and 5, and when you hear the voice of your Savior crying out to you, saying, come out from her, O my people, and be separate, every generation of Christians needs to hear that. We can't do something exegetically or hermeneutically, Revelation say, it's a future book, this has nothing to do with me. Babylon is not a threat for me. It is. It is. So we're going to walk through this chapter, and we're going to see Babylon in its essential nature as a wicked world system in defiance of God. We're going to see its judgment, its plagues, and we're going to hear that voice of God, of Christ, commanding, calling, pleading with us to come out from Babylon and be separate. It begins at verse 1 through 3 with Babylon's judgment pronounced. After this I saw another angel... Coming down from heaven, he had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries." So the chapter begins with an angelic messenger, this proclamation of Babylon's final fall entrusted to this heavenly messenger. The decree and power behind the fall of Babylon comes from Almighty God. It's not the angel's doing, but the angel is the messenger. And the angel is described in words that are hard to to fathom. The angel has great authority. Not all angels are equally authoritative. There's some angels that are called archangels. The word literally means ruler angels. Some angels have greater authority than others. This angel seems to have great authority. Wouldn't say greatest authority of all the angels. Doesn't say that, but a great authoritative angel. And not only that, he has great glory. There's an overwhelmingly brilliant light surrounding this angelic messenger. Like the, the, the light of the, the glory of heaven that shone around the angel that bore uh, on the hills of Bethlehem the message that Jesus was born. And the glory of the Lord shone around him and the, and the shepherds were terrified. This angel has that kind of illuminating glory that shines radiantly. And the light is shining in this, in this dark age. Don't know if the, uh, the bowl that was poured out, the fifth bowl, Revelation 16.10, is still going on at that point. If, the, if the, the earth is still plunged into a thick, deep darkness, so deep that, that you could feel it. Don't know if that was just a short time, etc. But we know there's a general darkness spiritually and maybe even physically at that point at the end. This angel has great authority, great glory, and he speaks with a great voice. speaks with a voice like thunder. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. This is the decree from God. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. God is going to cast her down. The final fall of Babylon or the the final phase of Babylon being cast down is yet in the future. But this uh, prophetic past tense, like it's already happened. Fallen, fallen is. It's already done. That sense of finality, prophetic finality. And the angel uh, repeats it. Fallen, fallen. The repetition gives a sense of certainty and finality and urgency to the announcement. And Babylon has become a home for demons, a haunt for evil spirits. This uh, borrows the language we already saw in Isaiah 13 where where nothing but wild animals and birds settle down in the ruins of Babylon. And so you get the same kind of language here. Like dust, disgusting carrion birds. Like You see that from time to time. You drive around the streets, uh, a more rural area of, of Durham, and you can see dead deer sometimes. And you see all these nasty black carrion birds who really are doing us all a service. But I don't like to watch it. They get out of the way just in time as you're driving. you ever notice they're right there in the middle of the road and just kind of sullenly move. And then they go back to their nasty business. There's a sense of decay and death here in Babylon. And Jesus said in the the little apocalypse in, in Matthew 24, verse 28, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Remember that demons billowed from the guts of the earth... In Revelation 9, with the blowing of the fifth trumpet, and these especially vicious and evil demons, perhaps will haunt the final form of Babylon. The wickedness of Babylon is exposed in verse 3. All the kings of the earth have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. As we saw last week with Revelation 17, the great whore of Babylon, the prostitute of Babylon, there's a sense of the allure of uh, the enticing of the world toward evil and sin and immorality, especially that sexual immorality. 1 John 2 speaks of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life being the essence of the world, what I'm calling in this chapter Babylon, the enticing allure of lusts. Babylon is a system of worldwide corruption, making all the nations drunk. And notice the, uh, the phrase, the merchants of the earth. We're going to see later in the chapter the, uh, the issue of merchandise, of commerce, of trade, of, of stuff you can buy, possessions you can buy, you can spend money on. And we're, we're going to talk about this. there's a sense of commerce, of merchandise here. And it mentions excessive luxury. Look at verse 3. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Verse 7 says, give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. Again, verse 9. The earth who committed adultery, the kings of the earth committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury. So I've thought a lot about luxury. What is it? I remember years ago I was staying at the home of a wealthy man. And he had a magazine called Connoisseur Magazine. I found it interesting. They had different articles that you could read on different items. He actually had a number of copies so you could flip through and there would be items. And it was the best of the best in each of these categories. I don't know why. I found myself interested in carving knives and reading an article on the best carving knives... Do you know you can spend, even if you set aside from a jewel-encrusted knife, at that point it's all about the jewels, so there's no point in talking about it. You could put it on a butter knife and be worth $10,000. Setting that aside, there are some things, they are nothing but knives they are created by craftsmen who've descended from the samurai, I guess, in Japan. $6,000 for a paring knife. I'm scared of a knife like that. I think at one point I'm going to see the tip of my finger on the cutting board. It doesn't slow down for anything. I actually watched YouTube videos on really sharp knives that are going through, going through tomatoes with no effort, and then again, and then again and, again, and again, until it was like microscopically thin. I'm scared of a knife like that. But I'm even more scared of the $6,000 price tag. Or other articles about bespoke suits. That's where it's tailor-made from Savile Road. In uh, London, $30,000 for a man's suit. $40,000 for a pair of Italian shoes. You could be well-dressed for $70,000. And your shoes cost more than your suit. So this actually caused me a lot of trouble. I actually thought about this for a long time. A number of you are very wealthy. And very generous with your wealth. And I'm mindful of that. I don't know how much you give. I don't know any specifics about any uh, member of the church and what you give. But it's wrong for us to read Revelation 18, wealthy as we are, and think that the word luxury has nothing to do with us. So I was troubled by the word luxury. What is it? We admire craftsmen, artists, let's say, that spend maybe a year on a painting. And we'll go to the museum and see, or a sculpture by Michelangelo. He'll work for years on the Sistine Chapel and we admire that level of skill is that an evil thing? <sighs> but then if you try to sell it and you sell it for market value that's a luxury are you is it wicked for you to buy it? And so it wasn't until this morning I was praying about the topic of luxury and I started to see the future of luxury. You know what the future is? In the new heaven we are going to do our best to make things and the things we will make will be exquisitely skillful but they will not be idols. They'll be done overtly for the glory of God. That's the future of really fine craftsmanship. It's going to be in the new heaven and the new earth, I believe. But no idols and no sinful luxuries. But friends, it's a threat now. It's a threat to your soul now. There's a warning here against excessive luxury, whatever that means. And if you take this before God and say, oh God, deliver me from sinful luxury... That's the safest you can be. It says in James 5, 5, speaking of wicked oppressors, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Oh, that that might not, not be true of any member of First Baptist Church. Do not excuse yourself from looking in the mirror, from asking God, is this true of me? I don't want to fatten myself in the day of slaughter. Well, in verse 4 and 5, there is a category of people that escape Babylon. They're delivered from Babylon. We see the future doom, but there is this invitation, this command. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. This is the application from Revelation 17 and 18. This command to come out of her and be separate. Says God to his people. There is a a warning here. There's a negative motivation. Flee the wrath to come. That's the warning we get from Revelation 18, 4 and 5. This morning, under Wes and his team's leadership, we have the positive motivation. Did you see it? I wrote it right here. Jesus is better. That's why we flee. Because Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. Better than the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Jesus is better. Make my heart believe that. That's what I want. I want to know and believe that Jesus is better than the lusts and the pleasures of the flesh. But we're commanded to flee. And Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. This is the test of God's people in every generation. We cannot excuse ourselves and say we're not in the final seven years. So therefore Babylon isn't even around today. We don't need to worry about this. Do not do that. The world will continue to offer in every generation to Christians. Benefits and pleasures and possessions and powers. If we will in some way deny Christ. We must stand firm in our faith and be holy. The smoke from Babylon's future fire can only be smelled right now by faith. The heat from Babylon's future flames, you can only feel them right now by faith. The cries of her future torment can only be heard right now by faith. We have to look at our lives and see the way the luxuries of Babylon... have worked themselves into our souls and flee. Now in verses 6-8 through we see Babylon's judgment justified. Give back to her as she has given... Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave to herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. So God is seeking to to explain Babylon's judgment. us the justice of it the rightness of his casting down of this city it's payback time now payback time for all the torment that babylon has caused his people and she's going to drink torture and grief from the cup in her hand she's mixed out a huge cup of luxury for herself and she's been drinking from that cup then pay her back the same measure the same measure she weighed to herself pay her back that's what it says And notice her overconfidence. It's exposed here. This is the same language you see in the book of Isaiah, the same uh, language from later in Isaiah that Babylon boasts nothing bad's ever going to happen to me. She sits like a queen surrounded by her realm. She cannot be touched, she cannot be threatened, so she believes. She thinks she's never going to mourn. Widowhood will never come on her, nor the loss of children. She's safe. But she's forgetting about the power and the holiness of God. And the judgments are listed here. Death, mourning, famine. And the source of the judgment is listed. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 14 about the fall of Babylon and of Assyria. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out and who is able to turn it back? In verses 9 through 19, we see Babylon's judgment lamented. Babylon's citizens and merchants will grieve her fall. This is the end of everything they've loved, everything they've lived for, everything they built their lives on, it's ending. Idolaters do not give up their idols easily. And the sadness that they feel at the fall of this wicked world system shows the wickedness of their own hearts too. They're very sad at the fall of Babylon because they loved her. The kings of the earth will lament her. Look at verses 9 and 10. They drank luxury with her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. And then the merchants of the earth will take up the lament. Those who traded with her. Verse 11 and following. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls. Fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory. Costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh. And frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, bodies and souls of men. They will say the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off. They'll be terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and they'll cry out, Whoa, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls in one hour. Such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Not only the merchants but even the ship's captains who delivered the cargo to Babylon will lament her. Verse 17 and following says, Every sea captain, all who travel by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea, they will all stand far off. And when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? And they will throw dust on their heads. With weeping and mourning, they will cry out, Woe, woe, O oh great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. The days of luxury and ease will come to an end. Self, a sinful self indulgence will be over forever. But not everyone will be grieving. Not everyone will be sad about the fall of Babylon. No, not at all. The fall of Babylon the Great will be a source of energetic praise and joyful celebration among the servants of the Lord. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Remember that Babylon the Great, in the last chapter, in in 17, verse 6, was drunk with the blood of the saints, those who gave testimony to Jesus. The worldly people don't understand why Christians don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, Peter says. And they heap abuse on us if we don't join in with them. when Babylon the great is finally thrown down, all of heaven will celebrate. And we're going to begin to hear the sounds of the hallelujahs next week. In Revelation 19, the first part of the chapter, the fourfold hallelujah. I'm not going to sing the hallelujah chorus next week, but it's sweet. The celebration. We will be so done with Babylon when we get to heaven. So done with it. We will be healed from it forever. I'm looking forward to that. Babylon's judgment will be completed. It's symbolized by the casting down of a large millstone. Verse 21 and following. A mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea. And said with such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down. Never to be found again. The overthrow of Babylon will be a violent thing and God will do it. I believe it's part of what we've been seeing with the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and then the second coming of Christ. It's, a, it's an act of violence. But it's going to happen. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players, trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men, and by your magic spell all the nations were led astray. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Well, the hurling down of the millstone is a symbol of the huge crash. Millstones a massive stone used for grinding wheat into into flour. You could imagine something like that thrown into a pond or a lake, and the splash would be huge. It's a symbol of their of Babylon's violent fall. And the end of Babylon's music. All the musicians will stop their their playing. The music is done. It's finished. What a payback. You know, you think about the, the Jews in exile and how they sat by the waters of Babylon. And their tormenting captors mocked them saying, play for us one of the songs of Zion. Psalm 137. But how can I sing the song of Zion in a foreign land? Well, this is reversal. The songs of Babylon are never going to be sung again. Instead, we'll hear a new song. The song of heaven. The song of Zion. And we'll get to sing and, and play that song forever. What payback for that mockery that they did to the Jews in exile! And it's the end of all of Babylon's work. All the skilled craftsmen will cease their labors. Craftsmen made the luxuries. They're working all the time on their luxuries. But nobody's going to buy them. The time is done. I did not say it's the end of skilled craftsmanship. That's going to go on into the new heaven, new earth forever. I don't know what you folks are going to be in the new heaven, new earth. What you're going to make. But I look forward to seeing it. And we're going to craft things that will be for the glory and the radiant display of God in the new heaven and the new earth. We will use our hands, our resurrection hands to make skillful things. Be far more skillfully done than anything we find here on earth. But these Babylonian craftsmen, nobody's buying their luxuries ever again. It's the end of all light. The light of the lamp will not be seen in Babylon again. It's a place of utter darkness. It's the end of all human relationships. The sound of bride and bridegroom. They'll be marrying and giving in marriage, Jesus said, right up until the day The second coming came. But at that point it's over. And the reason is given. By your magic spell all nations were led astray. And in Babylon in her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all those who have been killed on the earth. From the the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. All this blood will come on this generation Jesus said. Matthew 23. He's not forgotten anything. Remember what Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And God said, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground for vengeance. And so all the blood that's been shed wickedly on earth will be avenged by the fall of Babylon. And it's interesting, this word magic spell or sorcery, the word in the Greek is pharmakeia, from which we get the word pharmacy or pharmaceutical, relates to drugs, drugs. Perhaps also to occultic secret religions. There's an alluring spell of sorcery or of magic. That Babylon has a hold over the minds and hearts of its subjects. And we are only now, friends, in our sanctification, in our progressive growth. We are only gradually coming out of the haze and stupor of Babylon's influence. Do you feel it? It's still in our minds and hearts. We're still allured and tempted by some of, of Babylon's pharmakeia. But there'll come a day it's going to end. All right, applications. What can we take from these? really these two chapters, Revelation 17 and 18? Well, first, just look around you with eyes of faith. Feed your, feed your faith with the word of God. Just be in the word. Read Romans. Read Colossians, Ephesians. Saturate your mind with the gospels. Read the prophecies in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, Bab- Babylon. You don't just have to focus on Babylon. Just fill your mind and heart with the word of God. And your faith, your eyes of faith will get sharper. And you'll be able to see what's really happening. You'll be able to see the surrounding world for what it really is. And the world that John is writing about in 1 John 2 is a threat, a deadly threat to your soul. So see it. And, and let it motivate you with a healthy fear of the world. There should be a fear, a healthy fear. I'm not called on to fear of man, but we should fear the temptations of the world. We should say, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We should be afraid of what the world can do. There's a conviction side of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but also the conviction of things not seen. And by that, we are convicted of sin. And there's a holy fear that comes over us. as It says in Hebrews eleven seven. By faith Noah, when warned about things not seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. So there's a fear that should grip us of Babylon so that we, we don't build an ark to save our family, but we walk in Christ. And we protect ourselves from the world. Concerning Babylon and America... Do we suppose that the most dominant military nation on earth and the most dominant economy on the earth is immune from the spirit of Babylon? That rises from the ashes of every old empire and takes over? That this nation is immune to Babylonian tendencies? We have godly public servants that are elected to office like Daniel. And they are counselors to the king. And they're able to give good advice. But the system itself is still Babylon. And so come out and be separate. There's repulsion and attraction, right? So be disgusted and repulsed by the things of Babylon that we've described here. She's a haunt of every unclean bird and demonic spirit. Be disgusted by it. And be attracted to the theme that we sang about, Jesus is better. It's like, I would rather follow Christ today than watch yet another binge on Netflix. I would, I would rather have Jesus than sin sexually by the internet. I would rather have Jesus than do shopping therapy online or at Streets of South Point. I would rather, Jesus is better than those things. I don't need to buy something to feel better. And what about luxury? Well, for me as a pastor, I think the, to any of you who are wealthy, and that's all of you, and if you don't think so, go to Haiti, go to India, go to Pakistan, go to the third world, you'll see. We're wealthy Christians. All right, well, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, this is... Timothy was was a pastor, and this is what Paul said to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds... And to be generous and willing to share. And in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation of the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So let 1 Timothy 6 command you to be generous and live for the future world. You, some of you folks are incredibly generous. Lavishly so. That's how we meet our budget. We meet our Lottie Moon goals. But You alone know how generous God wants you to be. Don't Don't make assumptions. Go back to God and say, God, what do you want me to do with all this wealth that you've given me? Concerning Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, see it as a part of the Babylonian system. It's what it is. Someday, abortion will be obsolete. Praise God. Let's keep praying and serving and working toward that end. Pray for an end to abortion find ways to help crisis pregnancy centers or women in crisis pregnancies. If you yourself have had an abortion in the past and you're broken and shattered by it, just understand the grace of God and the mercy there is at the cross. If you are sexually tempted with another person, stand firm and don't give in to sexual immorality that is the root of so many of the abortions that happen. My final word has to be to you who are outside of Christ or perhaps were before you came in here today. Come to Christ. When it says come out of her and be separate, that's Jesus saying come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Come to Christ. He can disentangle your heart and your soul from Babylon and save your soul. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we learn continually from your word. We know that The word is wise, it is powerful, it is able to save our souls through faith in Christ Jesus. Christ, the Savior, is better. Lord, I pray that you call lost people out of darkness into light. Help them to turn away from worldly wealth and power and pleasure and things that don't matter, to turn to Christ and find forgiveness in him. And help us to share that message. We are a wealthy nation. Help us to be willing to, to talk about Babylon the Great and its future fall and to warn people and to urge people to find in Christ a beautiful Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification,